You're listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, a weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Pieske designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Today we are talking about patient reported outcomes or PROs and the FDA patient-focused drug development guidance. A really, really nice interview with Rachel Lawrence. So stay tuned for that. Patient-reported outcomes are a really, really important thing. Um, everything is moving more towards patient-centric um, in terms of medicine. And I think that makes a lot of sense because patients are just much more experienced, educated, and want to have a say in um, treatment. And so patient-reported outcomes is a really important topic. And of course, FDA is a really, really important, important player. So listen to this really, really awesome interview with Rachel. I'm producing this podcast in association with PSI, a community dedicated to leading and promoting the use of statistics within the healthcare industry for the benefit of patients. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to the video-on-demand content library, free registration to all PSI webinars, and much, much more. And of course, there is the PSI conference coming up in Gothenburg. So, If you have not registered yet, that's a great opportunity to do so. Um, Rachel and myself will be there and lots of lots of other people. So head over to psiweb.org and learn more about this and see you in Gothenburg. And now let's go to the episode. Welcome to another episode of the Effective Statistician. And today I'm talking with a good friend, Rachel. How are you doing? Thank you. Thank you, Alexander. Very well, thank you. Yeah, uh, it's really great that we're talking together uh, on the podcast. We have been talking to each other through PSI for, for a very, very long time and um, have met quite often at all kind of different PSI-related occasions. So it's it's great to have you on the, on the show today. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit about your career up to now, what, what brought you here and what brought you into this topic of patient-reported outcomes. Yeah, um, yeah. Thanks very much, Alexander, for the intro and for the invitation to talk to you on the podcast. Um, yeah, so I am. Um, well, I actually started my career um, not as a statistician at all. Um, I did a biochemistry and genetics degree, um, and I started working at AstraZeneca as a molecular geneticist in the mm-hmm. um, genetics lab. Um, but actually, I found uh, rather than doing PCRs, which everyone now knows exactly what they are, um, uh, <laughs> I was I liked uh, analyzing the data and understanding that. So um, I, I sort of moved into statistical genetics, um, and that's sort of what kickstarted more my statistical focus in in the career. And then with a diploma in statistics um, um, while I was at work, and. Um, through working in the research area in genetics, I started working 
on um, the polymorphisms or the variations in the drugs that might lead to res different responses to treatment. Um, and we collaborated with, with the clinical, uh, clinical teams on some of the projects with the clinical trial data to, to understand if, if, if that was indeed um, reasons for some of the differences we were seeing in, in treatment effects. So that was kind of how I got introduced into the clinical trial side of the statistics uh, department AstraZeneca and I and I moved from the statistical genetics research area into into the clinical trials section and um, in terms of working as a more standard clinical trial statistician um, where I met many colleagues and um, really uh, grew and developed in terms of statistical you know, application working clinical trials. So I worked in a respiratory um, disease areas um, on a few projects and then I'm, I'm mainly worked in oncology projects after that so yeah that, that was really good basis um, in terms of all, all, the, all the oncology endpoints and, and work we did at AstraZeneca. Cool Where did, when did the PRO interest kicked in? So a bit of a mix. So actually in my last project um, at AstraZeneca um, I was a you know, the lead statistician, so we had to be really sure about all our endpoints. And, um, um, you know, we were, I was worked together with colleagues in, in the PRO department on some of those, those endpoints and realising that they weren't very, you know, uh, we weren't very good at that time at really defining what we were going to do with the PRO endpoints. And, you know, that, that we just produced lots and lots of tables of descriptives and handed them to a different department and nobody really worried about it but I did work really closely that we really integrated that in those projects into the CSR so I had that that background in AstraZeneca and um, then um, well what really happened was AstraZeneca said they were going to move location um, <laughs> down from where I live in the um, edge of the Peak District in the hills to Cambridge and I decided that wasn't for me um, so I left I left AstraZeneca And um, then for a while, I worked a little bit freelance um, with my own consultancy um, company while my children were still small. And that was the time I got more active with PSI because I wanted to really keep connected to the community mm -hmm. of, of statisticians and pharma, even though then I wasn't at AstraZeneca. And then through after a while of working on my own as freelance, I, I really missed working in a team environment. And um, it was, I suppose, coincidental that I discovered that was a company right near my house um, that was looking for um, a statistician and they worked on patient reported outcomes. So um, it was kind of synergistic. Um, they were looking for somebody to um, come in and work with their clinical trial um, clients on terms of that focus. So that's when I joined us to Adelphi Values. That was about Four years ago now um I can't believe that time flies <laughs> and so <laughs> since since joining them I've them you know become have a background in terms of clinical trials you know really useful um to apply that and learn the specialism in terms of patient reported outcomes and I think being able to have the two so hats so learning from experts at Adelphi in terms of the the nuances and the, and the things that go behind some patient reported outcomes make you appreciate the sort of richness of that data and, and how it can be used, but also can see it from the other side, um, you know, from, from coming from the pharma side of, of what priorities can be um, in terms of perhaps regulatory or other, you know, HTA or other audiences, if you like. So, awesome. Yeah, that's where probably how I got to where I am today. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah, and um, Pyros is really the, the topic 
uh, the hot topic for, for already quite some time. And um, there's also some episodes that I already recorded about it. And um, there's, of course, one stakeholder that is always important in the field, and that's the FDA. And so uh, it's really great to talk today about the FDA and their kind of current view on PROs as they have released uh, draft guidance on it. But, but before we go into this draft guidance, maybe you can talk a little bit to kind of see the history of, of how that evolved with uh, PROs and, and, and regulatory. Yeah, so I think as part of um, the FDA's um, efforts in, in terms of relationship with their, what they publish as their 21st Century Cures Act, the FDA sort of set out their mantra in terms of wanting to really develop some guidance um, in, in detail on, on patient-focused drug development, all the way from all aspects. So not just the how we use it in regulatory decision-making, but really what is a, um, what, what does that even mean in terms of, of collecting patient input into, into the whole process, as well as you know, development validation or fit-for-use questionnaires. So they, they put together um, a, a, a statement saying they were going to work on four methodological guidance documents to sort of address in a stepwise manner how, how to, you know, collect and submit that, that relevant data so that it could be used in, in, their, in the FDA decision making. And they want to touch on your recommendations for methods and um, as well as sort of analysis interpretation aspects. And I think that, um, you know, this started a while ago. Um, so it was in 2017 that the FDA published their sort of intent to do the, these guidance documents. And there is an older FDA guidance documents in terms of um, from 29, uh, 2009 in terms of PROs and clinical trials. But the idea is that the series of documents will, in the end, sort of supersede that and move things forward from the FDA's point of view. Okay, yeah, very good. That, that's a nice overview. And by the way, uh, if you listen to this and you're just thinking, oh, that's a lot of lot of references, you will actually find all of these references on our uh, homepage. So just head over to the Effective Statistician where you can learn more about the references and also see what Rachel is up to uh, otherwise and, and kind of uh, read her bio and so on. Okay, so uh, in terms of uh, these different guidances, where are we at the moment? Yeah, so as I mentioned, um, the FDA started the process in 2017, and they did put a sort of timeline that these guidances should have been finished by the end of last year um, in total. Um, I imagine that a global pandemic, you know, has changed timelines. Um, but as of, as of today, um, guidance one had already been finalised. And actually, when we're recording this podcast, um, the guidance two was, was had just been released um, this week, last week, uh, in the end of February. Um, so they, they're kind of finalised and out there. Guidance three and, and, and four are, are still sort of on their websites in the FDA's draft format, although public discussion meetings for these happened back in 2019. So 
I don't know exactly when we're going to get these final, you know, final guidance documents, but I imagine that they are will be will be coming soon. But you know, there's a lot of information even in the draft materials and the discussions that are out there that'll that that you can glean from the direction of travel and, and the sorts of topics that you know the FDA is going to have in the in these guidance documents. Cool. So let's let's go into these guidance documents a little bit closer one by one. And when we think about the first one, what what's the key topics for the first one? Yeah, so this is very much very early on in terms of um, collecting patient input in very general. So this is very much about thinking even at all about concepts, um, things that could be of interest to the patient. So it's a very, very um, sort of early on in terms of thinking about possible research questions and um, a methodology about how you could, you know, who you're going to get input from um, that's relevant um, to, to that disease area. So whether it's patients themselves, whether it's caregivers, you know, parents or, or carers in certain situations. So it's, it's very early on in terms of thinking in terms of the questions that are included in that and the, the guidelines in terms of uh, thinking about that patient input. Okay, so this is sounds like really kind of qualitative research that you would do at the beginning to kind of understand, okay, what are actually concepts that are important for a patient kind of? Is it something around sleep or is it something about kind of itch or pain or what all the different things are that, that a patient might be concerned about for, for a specific indication. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the guidance too goes into sort of, you know, more, more of those methods for how you can get that, elicitate that information from patients, you know, how to do that qualitative research, how you do interviews mm -hmm. and develop an interview guide, um, how you even think about selecting questions for surveys, um, you know, how they consider that, you know, to be applicable across different countries and demographics and, and sort of those sort of qualitative research topics. So, yeah, Guidance 2 has got a lot more information on those methods um, appropriate for that sort of qualitative research. Ah, okay. Very good. So, so that is Guidance 2. Interesting. That is, what do you think are the kind of main problems there? With, with us that, that need to be answered? Yeah, I mean, I think um, actually, you know, it's something I really learned a lot more when joining Adelphi. I had no sort of concept ahead of time of all the work that actually needs to go into sort of developing those, those questionnaires and finding out, you know, what those, what those areas are, you know, what even those concepts to start with are, are, are of interest and how you go about doing that and why why it's important to do it very specifically for sort of your disease areas um, mm. or your or whether it's children or adults and things like that. So there's it, it's very important that um, we actually do really get those concepts um, really separated. It's a very big, you know, it, it's very psychological. It, it's very much about all those, those sort of side aspects of, you know, being mm. understood understanding those those very different nuances about what it is about you know it wouldn't just be pain you know for example it could be something a lot more specific about you know that interference is how much it interferes with daily life or how much you know how much can't you do or or, or where the pain is the types of pain or how prolonged your pain is for example um and so where there are link there are some you know link concepts and things like that in terms of really thinking about 
you know, really that concept elicitation phase is, is really getting to the to the bottom of, of, of those really important things through those interviews. And and it, it's um although it's qualitative and less familiar to as a statisticians, you know, there's a lot of science behind how how those how that qualitative research is done and applied. And you know, it's a very rigorous um, scientific discipline in its in its own right. And um, you know, sort of really underpins that what what we might be used to seeing as a questionnaire turning up in a clinical trial. There's been a lot of thought behind that originally um, about how that that's been developed. So yeah, and I think it's still an active field, and it's still is worked on because of maybe the growing disease areas that we work in or the different, you know, making sure that concepts are appropriate across different um, demographics and that sort of aspect. Okay. Guidance 3, what is Guidance 3 about? So Guidance 3 is a lot more about it is how do you um, refine those concepts and um, impacts that you that the, the patients have sort of told you about, but how do you make that into a questionnaire which we term an instrument so in terms of how will you make sure that um, that those questionnaires instruments that you that you give to patients are are doing doing what you hope they do that they're reliable that they're accurate that you know if you ask the same patient the same question lots of times and nothing has changed for them that, that there's a um, you know that, that you're getting consistent results and equally that you are seeing change where you would be expecting to see change so mm -hmm. that they're sensitive um, enough to those relevant relevant concepts and I think um, I think this this particularly sort of the guidance doesn't sort of use a term like validation per se of, of, of all um, questionnaires and uh, outcome assessments but more that they're fit for purpose but that doesn't just mean that they're sort of gone, oh, yeah, I think that'll do. You know, there's quite a lot of, um, that's sort of the point, the guidance There's quite a lot of rigorous about how you have to have demonstrated how it is fit for purpose for that, whatever purpose that is, whether that is, you know, for um, patient-physician interaction or whether it's used in a clinical trial. There can be lots and lots of different areas where clinical outcome assessments are used that's not just in clinical trials. So these holes so if, you know the FDA is still interested you know they could be used to um, help ascertain how you're going to use um, a medical device in terms of a, a walking aid or, or something like that it's not all just about like drug treatments as well so there's lots of different aspects that can come into those so yeah making them fit for purpose um, I think is, is is in guidance three it really you know gives their kind of perspective in terms of those those really important things that that would enable you to say that and demonstrate that okay well you just mentioned um, a word that or a phrase that is kind of related to pros and that is coas <laughs> yeah can you talk a little bit to see how these relates to each other yeah so i think that's when, when you're new to it you know the guidance is so suddenly saying coas and you're like hang on i thought you were talking about pros so a coa stands for a clinical outcome assessment and that's the general term for all these sorts of uh, measures so a pro is a patient reported outcome so that the act does mean sort of what it sounds like that the patient themselves report but you could have um caregivers helping you know caregivers filling out a form or parents for example filling yeah. out a form on behalf of patients so that would still be a clinical outcome assessment as a terminology but um, there are different acronyms depending on 
kind of exactly the type of questionnaire. So yeah, you'll kind of find in the guidance documents, they'll generally use COA in their headings and those terms, but you know, PRO is a type of COA. Okay, very good. So in terms of these these four guidances, what is guidance for and know about? Yeah, so guidance for um it is intended to it is titled that it will you know address the, the methodologies and standards um, and, and touch on maybe technologies to really think about how you're going to collect um, and analyze the COA data in in, in clinical trials uh, or or at least to incorporate those into endpoints that and then could be considered to be robust for regulatory decision making. Um, and, and also to do that in guidance for there's also quite a big section on um, being clear about how you can identify what a meaningful change is in the in the mm -hmm. clinical outcome assessment because you know not necessarily a statistical significance is is an important change for, for a patient so you know there's that guidance that covers these base these sort of two sort of sections I suppose. Yeah, I think the important difference is a really, really interesting topic in itself, isn't it? Because yes. when you think about it, an important difference can kind of depend on so many different factors. Yeah. Yes. So if you maybe start with a very, very severe disease, you know, a, a small change might not, you know, be relevant. But if you start with a very low symptom set, a small change basically means that you get rid of all the symptoms, which is probably relevant. Yeah. So this is one thing. The other thing is kind of um, change over time. Well, if it happens in, in a day, maybe really relevant. If it happens over a month, it may not be relevant. And this is, has nothing to do with p-values because it de shouldn't depend on, on sample sizes and things like this. So um, that's, that's a really, really interesting uh, aspect. What, what are your takes on this clinically relevant differences? Relevant for patient differences. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's, um, you know, it is a big topic. And I think, you know, the FDA very clear that they're, very precise about being the importance of identifying what's an important within patient change so almost as you're saying you know for for that for those patients how much can they you know how much can they change what's an important change for them and that's some of the research that we do earlier on potentially in the validation and looking at those sort of aspects you can really um, with a qualitative research, you can help understand some of those aspects as well in terms of what would you say is, you know, an important, um, you know, change in, in these outcomes. So there's a focus on what's really um, meaningful and important for a patient, for individual response. And that's particularly what's focused on in the FDA guidance. And then I think there is also the aspect that almost as you're touching on, there are different considerations for what's meaningful as a change over time if you're looking at a group so you know if a group mm -hmm. of patients and their mean changes over time you know what does that mean um, in terms of that interpretation of that those mean scores over time and also how big should the difference be between the means between patient groups so yeah. it kind of gets to start to sound all a little bit confusing because you're like well there's three different types of 
changes that we might want to consider. But I think that's exactly why some of the guidance is there. And, you know, it's it it's not just a simple, you know, oh, one number at just this time point. You need to consider these aspects and that interrelatedness. And because of the depth of the of the patient level information, there's a lot to know. How how many symptoms did they start with? How much have they gone down? Is there a, a floor and a ceiling effect? Because yeah. they can't improve anymore, but that doesn't mean you know, there's not been some degree of treatment effect. So yeah, they kind of, they all come together, but I think the, the FDA particularly, and in this document, are very clear about saying what's important for individual uh, individual changes. And that can be useful also just to put into context. So that could be, you know, in the PROs and you would like to say what proportion of patients, you know, improved. That obviously depends on the threshold you've agreed for that change yeah. score to yeah. have moved by. But it also, you know, becomes a, a quite interpretable number once once everything underneath that is understood. So, you know, how many improved, how many de- decreased. Um, and, you know, we're basing that on saying they had to have changed by Final documents and whether they're really going to 
detail a lot more about technologies because technologies change quite quickly. Yes. So um, it feels a challenge in in a in a guidance document that might sit around for ten years. So I think it might just be a bit more of an outline of those sort of considerations of the sorts of technologies and that what concerns they might have on how that impacts their decision making because you know how. Uh, robust or validated those are not just the concepts that have been asked about yeah the next point i would like to talk about basically combines two hot topics in statistics so that is really a super hot topic so to say it's a hot topic of pros and the hot topic of s demands so when we think about the kind of these two things that that go together what's the fda's point of view on that or what, what is kind of the draft guidance kind of going into yeah and i think that so the, the draft guidance does sort of have quite a big section and the way it was arranged was really taking the estimate framework um, and and splitting it and thinking about um population and really particularly a lot about endpoints um, and then you know it links very uh obviously in in my mind you know sort of because it's about what is the research question and fundamentally you know that that's what the, the FDA guidance is about is, is setting a lot clearer research questions so that as a as a decision maker a regulatory decision maker you you can then know what question has been asked and if it's been evaluated in in a suitable way so and um, the the draft guidance document was sort of pretty much based around sort of the S demand topics in terms of the way it was organized there was quite a lot of things and in different sections and of course I think in the Esterman sort of using Esterman framework a lot you it can sometimes feel like a little bit almost circular because it is something a, a treatment or is it an intercurrent or is it part of an intercurrent event strategy you know mm -hmm. if you're talking about say commeds you know is that the treatment allows you to have commeds or not or or, or or is it something that is then taking those comments that you know was was sort of effectively disallowed and um, and I, I think things like that do really uh, are really kind of key with a PRO type endpoint um, you know where you could really see that taking anti-pain medication would potentially really um, influence when if you are asking how somebody's pain was so um, yeah. you know it it's maybe more so than some of the other endpoints you know you really need to just think about hang on they're, they're allowed to take those of paracetamol in, in a study that's you know that's that's no problem but you know is that a balance between the arms is it going to create a bias in your in your treatment effect when you're looking at a um, particular PRO I think that's where it comes from um, so mm -hmm. um, yeah I think that the uh, FDA definitely um, are using the estimate sort of framework for framing this and you know they, they've got they had some examples in the draft guidance but it was also before the estimate ICHE9 um r1 was finalized as well so i think you know i, I think the section might slightly change in in language as everybody has been developing it in the last um couple of years and some of the examples maybe i i think might get you know, amended or altered or, or made more relevant in final guidance. Okay. So it really talks about kind of treatment, population, endpoint, and these kind of things, really. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Well, not so much the treatment. 
uh, in the current heading. Um, it's before that. Um, yeah. but, uh, but certainly a lot about the end point, yeah. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more heavily about the uh, one aspect of it that is the how we actually then analyze the data. There are a couple of, let's say, analysis that maybe are especially suitable for uh, PROs. And let's let's kind of go through these a little bit. So first, uh, that is mentioned, is uh, landmark analysis. So for those not familiar with this term, what does it actually mean? Yeah, so um, it's interesting in the draft guidance um, that that was almost sort of mentioned, mentioned first or interesting to me because I don't know how applicable it is in um, you know, in every setting, but um, in general, it's in terms of, well, not in general, it's, it, you know, it's in terms of looking at the data up to um, a certain, a fixed time point. Mm -hmm. So I think I'm used to using landmark analysis more in a kind of survival oncology setting, whereas they're kind of using, using the same language to say, look, they want to look up to a certain time point. So The FDA quite often use an example of a sort of up to 12 weeks. I don't believe that they, you know, 12 weeks is any sort of global standard. That's the only time we can look at PRO data, but um, it's always good to have an example. So, you know, they're kind of saying that, that it's important to specify the time point up to which you're going to look at your analysis. Yeah, okay. Um, so whether, whether that is then for a you know, survival type analysis where we usually typically think of a landmark or, or but more generally they're using it to say looking up to a certain time point um, which then could be applied with different you know whatever sort of method you're looking up at that point so I, I think that sort of guidance will stay that just being a little bit clear for a, a regulatory endpoint like just being clear about what time frame you're looking at yeah okay it's is useful for everybody and makes it a lot more comparable um, perhaps to other treatments and things like that and okay useful for that the second part is analyzing ordinal data which i love personally because i've worked on ordinal data already when when i worked on my master thesis or at the moment at that time point it was called diploma thesis ordinal data is of course you know something that you very easily get with kind of patient reported outcomes kind of yeah. How do you feel on a scale from one to six? Yeah, <laughs> with one being, you know, super happy and six being kind of you want to kill yourself. Uh, so where are you on that? And then, of course, these kind of different labels, one, two, three, four, five, six, are ordinal in a way that, well, one is better than two and two is better than three. But the difference between one and two is not comparable really to the difference between two and three and so what what's kind of said about that in, in in the guidance yeah i think it's exactly that that you know the fda is pointing out that many of these domains are ordinal and the models should be ordinal we shouldn't necessarily just be uh, assuming they're reasonably normally distributed and <laughs> um you know are continuous so um i think You know, it's more thinking about should we be presenting a little bit more um, descriptively in terms of percentiles or, you know, and more sort of stacked bar charts rather than mean values. And I think it's about understanding the PRO instrument that you've used. So some can have quite maybe um, 
uh, quite a range of, of scores. So although a single question might have just been scored on, you know, one to five, one to seven scale, um, quite often some of the things we report, for example, pain, or even with the EURTC, um, even, even just the global health status, you know, it's a couple of questions that have been used. And so the actual range of the values possible um, for a patient, it isn't just three or five, yeah. you know, actually it can range because it's um, usually a sort of multiple or addition, for example, a, a yeah. Some of items over, you know, if you have 10 items, each range from zero to 10, then yeah. you have yeah. Yeah, a top score from zero to 100. <laughs> yeah, and I think that it's maybe understanding from any given sort of instruments being used for that disease area, is it just kind of one question? And that's not usually that common in a fit-for-purpose yeah. questionnaire that's used in, a, in, in this way. They are usually a little bit more detailed. So... Yeah. Um, so you can use continuous sort of endpoint analysis. I think the point in the document is where it's not, though. And um, for one example might be um, in the EORTC, which is commonly used in cancer, is, you know, um, is, is using things like the GP5, um, which, which is just like sort of how um, impacted are you on the side effect of treatments? Yeah. And, you know, that is just one question. And, you know, we, we need to be looking at that. No, I'm not impacted. Yes, I'm impacted a lot. But lots of other things like pain, for example, um, can be a bit more continuous. So being clear, what, which you've got, yeah. you know, I think is, is what they're really saying. Do an appropriate analysis for the data you actually have, not just assume it's all the same. Yeah, it's the same also with kind of if you think about lots of the endpoints they look into the uh, COVID studies, like this mm -hmm. OSCI, I think, stands for, where you kind of have go from being dead to being kind of completely free of symptoms and discharged from, from hospital. Yeah, mm -hmm. And so um, that's a typical ordinal scale. And uh, whereas, yeah, there's a big difference from going from dying uh, or you yeah. know being discharged from hospital <laughs> yeah so yeah, yeah that, that's by the way if you are really interested in, in learning more about kind of analysis that takes these kind of ordinal structures into account i highly recommend going back to one of the most downloaded episodes with frank konitschke about non-parametric analysis because that is uh, that's an approach that really just takes into account the ordering of mm -hmm. uh, of the uh, outcomes and not just kind of assumes some kind of other metrics on it. Okay, we talked already a little bit about time to event analysis with landmark analysis. I think that is that's a pretty kind of clear thing to do. But what would be kind of typical events in PROs we would look into? Because it's not mortality or <laughs> something <laughs> like this. Yeah, so, um, I mean, I think we, we did sort of touch on it. It's related to what we talked about earlier is that, you know, we would usually think about a decline in a, in, in a score, mm -hmm. a, a decline in quality of life or an increase in symptoms that's meaningful to the patient. Mm -hmm. So it's a within patient change threshold. So you would be looking at saying, right, that a patient's had an increase in symptoms, you know, that meets that threshold at the time until, you know, was that, that was that very quick or was that delayed and and maybe more commonly you know really the sort of more general sort of physical functioning or, or quality of life that that might be something that you're 
really interested in sort of that might be something that you a uh, sort of longer term disease that, that that you might be thinking oh my physical function is okay it's maintained but it's going to decline as the as a treatment effect declines so you might be doing that but equally time to event um also for improvement yes yep. so you know um uh, when maybe there's some um, um tolerability early on with the study but actually you know then once once you've been taking it for a while um you know your symptoms overall are improving and staying maintained you know at that improved level so time to improvement equally so you need that threshold of change individual change that's key in a deterioration setting death sometimes also would be you know regarded as an event depending maybe on the disease area or stage of disease as well so and i think you know the fda in in the the document you know it sort of says you know depending depending where you are death you know consider death as an event as well so but i think um the other thing that, that is sort of mentioned as well it, um, it is that the censoring rules and a time to event analysis you know are very important as of course they are in any you yeah. know in any analysis and and it should be made much clearer um there's always a concern about um missing data um sometimes with the pro data and you know particularly perhaps sort of variations you know is, is a change do you want a definitive change? You know, must you have got worse and stayed worse? Um, mm. or, or must you have kind of got stayed worse and stayed worse for at least two visits, for example? Um, and depending how frequently you're measuring your PRO instrument and what you're, how long you're collecting post any other things that happen, post-treatment discontinuation or anything, you know, that might influence understanding of how you apply censoring in, in your study as well. So there's a, there's the nuances to those definitions of the events. Um, but I think the point really in the, in the FDA guidance is being clear what the event is and, and what your censoring rules are. Sounds yeah. straightforward. I think one of the <laughs> one of the key things for me in in these considerations is really kind of how dense or how sparse you collect the data. Yeah, mm-hmm. if you collect it only at baseline and endpoint, well. There's not a lot of time to <laughs> that you can do, yeah. And um, if if you kind of yeah collect it maybe only every four weeks, yeah. Mm-hmm. But the most of the actually you know differentiation happens within the first four weeks, yeah. Then you will not be able to see anything, yeah. So, so these kind of things really really play a role. So um, and I think it's. Um being clear depending on your disease area you know are you expecting to see a a decline in quality of life in that you know in that disease area in what you're measuring in that sort of time frame you know if is it a one-off sort of injection treatment you know is that sort of really something that then you're you're really interested in you know a time to something happening so I think it's very it, it is used but I think it's about it is the time to event the right thing with your with your data does it what does it message what question are you really asking yeah the next question is about responder analysis so i think there has been written probably piles of paper on responder analysis and uh, lots of kind of arguments about it oh why should you Digitalized data when you have all the data that is throwing away information. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why is that in here? <laughs> <laughs> I 
<laughs> I think it is because it is a com it has been very commonly used in PRO data and because for an individual patient it's useful to sort of think did they did their change score was that meaningful to them so they a responder um mm. but as I say that that sort of very relies on you've picked that one responder threshold and then you know hopefully yeah. research that and you've got that but you've already mentioned as we've talked you know that that could be very different you know one point change at either end of a scale might not really be the same thing um mm. so um i think that there's that aspect and and in the guidance the fda are basically saying in general they don't really recommend a responder analysis per se because of that kind of concern that you've collected this richness mm. of data but i think that what they do want to know is if you're then using this more you know, continuous data that you, that we do do analysis that shows that the changes that we are seeing are still relating to the ranges that are meaningful. So it's a kind of, it's a funny statement in their draft document. They kind of talk about it and saying, you know, it could be appropriate, but we don't really recommend it. Yet I also, they also have sections saying it's important to think about individual change thresholds too. So I think it's that getting those together, they, they they don't really recommend it as primary, but they are interested in understanding that changes are kind of, are, are meaningful. So. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, and that goes to the last part that is mentioned is the percent change from baseline. Because that, you know, takes somehow into account that, you know, uh, if you're starting with uh, less symptoms and kind of, you need to have a smaller change, smaller absolute change mm -hmm. to have something meaningful versus if you have, uh, you know, start with a lot of symptoms at the beginning and then have some, have some change. So uh, some improvement. And I'm just thinking about the improvement scenario here. So what's your take on the per percent change analysis? Yeah, and I think that the guidance really sort of suggests that they're, they're, you know, not keen on it either, you know, extreme caution should be exercised if you're going to use percent change from baseline analysis, which kind of possibly puts you off the idea of that being a really good idea. Um, but I mean, they're, they're highlighting this, you know, almost concern, you're saying, you know, the floor and the ceiling, you know, affects then becoming more of a problem because you, you can't improve uh, over 100%. So, yeah. They, they, they're kind of suggesting that's maybe not a great thing to do. I, that's my take. <laughs> okay. yeah. But I think, I think a change from baseline is fine and, and commonly used. There isn't a section in the, in the guidance document sort of being more positive on, on other approaches. So I think this section was more in the draft guidance. Um, it is highlighting some of the pitfalls, particularly for PRO type data and, and why. Um, it's it's important to appreciate those um, in, in the PRO analysis. Okay. Let's go to a last part, and that is about additional considerations. For me, that sounds like, and, and all the other things that we didn't know exactly where it fits, these are mentioned here. Uh, that's how I would set it up. <laughs> so so what, what are kind of the specific areas that, that, are, uh, that are mentioned there? Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I, I, I'm sort of hoping that maybe when the draft document 
you know becomes more final that they they will find a home because we've touched on some of those topics already um but they actually really do highlight um things a couple of things we haven't talked about that you know that they really are, are suggesting that for a COA to be really considered for a label claim it, it needs to be clearly defined and also included in your sort of endpoint testing strategy um yeah. hierarchy so um that concept was touched on elsewhere in here but um there's not any real lots of detail per se in the draft document other than making it clear that we should be able to be defining a PRO endpoint in in such a way that it can be part of that statistical sort of hierarchy testing although of course as we've touched on the 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 fact that it's got to not just be a statistical um treatment effect that we're looking for um it's got to be a it's it's also got to be a meaningful difference is um you know maybe more challenging to add to a sort of statistical hierarchy testing um but but, um i think they're just pulling it out you know don't just sort of expect to put a pro endpoint in and not do something that's robust to test that treatment effect okay it sounds pretty obvious for me Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm sort of hoping that might come out more earlier in the document because it's kind of saying you need to do that and how, how do you get it in the endpoint strategy being clearer. And I think that that's what they're also sort of suggesting in, in this sort of section of the document that, you know, it should be very clear what the, you know, what the objective is. Yeah. The other point also about kind of that it's clear in protocol and SAP. For me, that's also pretty kind of straightforward uh, thing. Is there some kind of history that this hasn't always been the case, how, how PROs has been analyzed? Yeah, exactly. I think it differs in sort of depending on therapy area. So where essentially a PRO has been kind of a key part of a primary endpoint has been done a lot better I think, you know, it's not more widely in lots of labels because it's been a secondary endpoint that's said it's not, you know, we'll just look at quality of life or quality of life and symptoms. And I think what, I mean, the Esteban framework really helps. It is just being like, that's not good enough. I don't know what you mean by I'm going to look at quality of life and all the things we've just spoken about. I think that, you know, there is those complexities and the subtleties and it, it's not just, oh, I'm just going to summarize a mean and then a mean across everything at every time point and then hope that somebody can conclude something from that. You know, actually, no, you know, do you want yeah. to be specific about your time point, about which endpoint it is? You know, um, is it physical functioning, for example, that's, that's you know, really going to support your, you know, your label claim and other aspects that you've collected in the PRO more supplementary and, and support that? But for a label, they, they don't want to, they can't really um, be expected to think we're going to cover every single aspect. Yeah. Okay. Very good. One last thing: there is currently a tick list in this draft guidance. Can you speak a little bit about this one? Yeah, they kind of put in a, a, a list of when you're planning a study, confirm you know confirm lo- lots of I- items. So I think it's quite reasonable uh, it's quite nice to have that in there and it kind of touches on most of the things we've put put before you know being very clear endpoint suggest you know making it clear that it's it's a the what you're using is a meaningful collecting meaningful outcomes and that it's fit for purpose that's sort of the validation um that your study design has been you know 
is, is, is adequate for collecting you know whatever it is you've set out to achieve um you know if you're looking at an immediate effect or ad, you know impact of adverse events that are going to happen quite early on in your study you know that you're collecting the data at the right sort of time you know that the frequency and the timings of collecting those I mean they kind of seem obvious some of these seem obvious points but that's the you know they, they come together that's what does make it a guidance document so that everybody can see that you know you, you need all these, these factors and I wouldn't say some of these are some of these are clearly not new they <laughs> they they are what happened, but I think that um, I guess in putting this together in in their draft guidance document, they're pulling things out a little bit more clearly that that maybe wasn't as clear for every sort of regulatory intent study. You know, they're clear that you need to be um, the instruments need to be clear how they're going to be given, administered. You know, and that people have been trained or um, that the instructions for them are clear, and that everybody is going to be able to complete them. There should be, you know, together with it being a, a well-known instrument that, you know, it, it, there are plans of how you're going to score the questionnaires, how they, as I mentioned before, you know, sometimes the questions are combined. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that that's going to happen in line with how that's all been um, uh, going to be done. And um, I think it also mentions being very clear on, as we said about, you know, putting that endpoint in the endpoint hierarchy testing and any sort of plans for multiplicity adjustment if needed um and i think that you know might reflect on how you what type of power endpoints are relevant in your your study and your your labeling um in terms of what what should be tested and how make clear plans on handling missing data seems fairly you know important but <laughs> pretty, pretty straightforward yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think this is why it's in there is that that's the sort of thing that hasn't been as clear as it ought to be you know the SMAN framework perhaps will help identify intercurrent events and separate out them from just missing data aspects so once you know what your question is that's a lot easier to to write down what you're expecting to be there and, mm-hmm. and I think that's been the sort of the one of the big blockers um from regulatory perspectives um, when I've been involved in some of the debates that it still seems to be the biggest concern missing data handling oh we're not sure about using missing data because uh, using PROs because it has lots of missing data and I don't know from most of the studies that I've worked on that you know in a clinical study setting we try very very hard to enable patients to be able to complete everything we've, we've asked them to do and it doesn't seem, you know, as much as maybe as a concern as it used to be um, in, in terms of, of missing that information. But it's still a massive, yeah, sounds obvious, but it's, it's a really big thing, I think, still that we're really clear about what's missing. Because unlike any other endpoint, you can't just go and collect it afterwards. If it didn't get collected, if the patient was too ill to complete their, their patient reported outcomes, yeah. you know, that's important to know. It's not just that it was missing. So. There are nuances around that, I suppose. Um, and yeah, the other things in the tick list are things like, um, you know, just being clear of how you're going to portray those, that treatment effect, the between group differences, and really, you know, how you're going to collect and store that, that data um, and from those. So there's a tick list. I, I hope it will become a little bit more of an organised tick list <laughs> in, a, in a later document. But um, I think, you know, making sure you've covered all these sorts of things, all these concepts, 
um, even if in, they're in a different order, in my view, <laughs> um, is, is, is really useful. Yeah, that's that's good, and it, this was actually a really really nice nice summary of uh, what we are really all discussed about. Um, there's one last thing that I wanted to talk with you about, and I know this is already a pretty long podcast episode, but there's a new face to face event coming up: the PSI conference in Gothenburg. We have actually met at PSI conferences in the past, and I think we are both really big fans of PSI uh, in general. So, so in terms of the PSI conference, for you personally, what, what, is, what are the best things about it? Oh, yeah. Well, I'm really looking forward to, to going in person, I really hope, uh, in Sweden this year, because it's uh, interactions with with other people so that I think is what I most look forward to I um you know maybe I came into PSI a little later in my own career than some who, who you know have been there a long time but everybody's um very welcoming and keen to to meet new people um obviously I've been on scientific committee and part of the organizer um, for the conference for a number of years now so it's it's really good to always meet the speakers and you know all these conference sessions that you've been planning or reviewing abstracts for and you get to go and listen to the talks which is much better than you know trying to trying to just sort of glean things from abstracts and and um you know uh, understanding the details so yeah I really like that combination of um meeting people um you know listening listening to talks and and then being able to discuss some of those topics as well and the variety of topics is just really nice it's an opportunity to to go and to listen to something um and listen to great presenters on a, on a topic that maybe is outside your day-to-day -day work um and i feel you can always learn from um how other people present stuff um and how how they explain things and yes yeah, so it's a really good learning opportunity on lots of levels and and great fun <laughs> yeah you know what my biggest pain with the conference always is is there's so much great content uh, that i always have have pain choosing which <laughs> session i go to yeah if you look at these parallel sessions I, i think like i want to go to all four of them at the same time but Well, unfortunately, I don't have kind of these magic things like uh, the girl in Harry Potter. What was her, what's her name? Oh, um, Hermione. Yeah. Hermione. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would that would be really good. So, but but I also completely agree. Kind of meeting also different people. If you've been there a couple of times, it feels a little bit like a meeting. Um, friends from mm -hmm. from school again and and uh, talking to each other so i highly recommend going there and already arriving on the sunday because the sunday evening is already really nice to get together yeah and i do know for um yeah just to say apparently it is a really really nice sweet city in, in gothenburg this year so everybody who's visited from scientific you know really said or, or they'll live there say it's a really good city so it's a really nice place to go so. Yeah, yeah, awesome. So if that is your first business trip after the pandemic, <laughs> that may be a really good choice. <laughs> Thanks so much, Rachel, for this awesome discussion about CFDA, PROs, 
and in the end about the conference. And I'm really, really looking forward uh, to meeting you in Gothenburg. And uh, all the best until then. Thank you very much. This show was created in association with PSI. Don't forget to register for the Gothenburg PSI conference. Thanks to Rain who helps with the show in the background. And thank you for listening. Reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician.